feels like nature wants to give the Dharma talk tonight. So hopefully I've chosen a theme somewhat in harmony with uh, the events outside. And that is, I'd like to talk this evening about the power of mindfulness. The Buddha discovered in his own practice, and he invited us to discover on our own, this very, very simple, yet extremely powerful, innate quality that we all share. Quality, this power that we all share whether we engage in meditation practice or whether we engage in all sorts of other activities. And that, of course, is the power of mindfulness. And what the Buddha discovered was is that this innate quality has the potential for facilitating a transformation of consciousness. Transformation of consciousness, which is both profoundly deep and wide. Deep in that it represents this practice of mindfulness. What it facilitates is a movement from the unconscious to the conscious. An inner movement from disconnection to connection. From living a life of habit living a life in the present with inner freedom. Moving from a life that's full of fear and reactivity to a life where there's inner strength and balance. Mindfulness facilitates the transformation of separation and transforms into the awareness of interconnectedness, of unity. And mindfulness practice leads us from a life of depending, unconditional happiness to a life where we can taste unconditional peace. It's wide that it, the mindfulness practice represents a radically different approach to life. It's an approach to life, a shift in consciousness from an endless pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain to a life which aspires to pay attention, to pay attention with the intention to learn, engaging in a process of inquiry or investigation, investigation into the nature of our suffering, into the nature of liberation from suffering, It's why, because what we discover through mindfulness practice is that each moment in our life is an opportunity for awakening, for liberation. The fact is, mindfulness practice is all-inclusive. The practice reaches into every aspect of our life. There's no aspect of our life that the light of mindfulness can't reach into whether it's our formal practice, whether it's our relationship to everyday activities, whether it's our relationship to our environment, or whether it's our relationships 
intimate relationships, casual relationships, relationships at work, reaches into all these areas. Gradually, slowly, sometimes. But because this transformation is so deep and so wide, it's not a casual undertaking. One of the reasons why we emphasize over and over again the need to cultivate patience, why we need to discover for ourselves what wise and gentle effort is, is because this transformation that I'm talking about does not unfold on our schedule. Of course, most of us are in a hurry. What's the problem with being in a hurry? The problem with being in a hurry is that it creates the conditions in the mind, a mind that aspires for this transformation. It creates the conditions for frustration, discouragement, self-doubt, and oftentimes giving up on the practice. The first step, and certainly everybody here has taken that step, and in many, many ways this is what a retreat represents. The first step in this practice is to stop running. In other words, developing this capacity to be with oneself. The heart of the essence of a retreat is exactly that. There are no guarantees of transcendent experiences. There's no guarantees that you're going to have a wonderful time or a bad time. But what it is, is that the conditions are here to support you in that investigation, in that practice. It's to help you strengthen your capacity to be with yourself so that we can stop running. What we're doing on this retreat, hopefully what we're trying to do also in our life, is attempting to be mindful. That's what wise effort is. It's learning how to be attentive and mindful to what your experience is in the here and now. Essentially, it's that simple. It's not about accumulating experiences. It's not about having one particular experience or two particular experiences. It's not about not having particular experiences. But what the practice is, is how learning how to be with your experience, with an inner clarity, so that we can see for ourselves what leads to freedom and what leads to suffering. Until we develop this ability to simply be with our experience in an intensive, silent way, we're destined to not learn. We're destined to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. Now this process of being with yourself, certainly the last two days, uh, might be actually a little bit tired of it by now, Um, but this process of being with yourself has both a bad news and a good news aspect to it. And personally, I like the bad news first. 
So the bad news, what's the bad news in terms of being with yourself? Because actually the bad news becomes the good news if you relate to it properly. The bad news is simply seeing the state of things when you sit down on the cushion. What we discover so often, and these insights, they're unavoidable. You know, these, this kind of news about what, what state your mind is, what state your body is, it's unavoidable on the path of insight uh, meditation. What we often discover is just how unconscious we are. You know, how unconscious we are. We discover how conditioned we are. You know, how conditioned we are to react to certain conditions that we confront. And so often, and, and these discoveries can be quite discouraging, uh, is that we discover just how much conflict and pain there is that we're holding, whether it's in our bodies or in our minds. Many, many ways, we're in a, we're in a battle. You know, we sit down and you don't have to take my word for it, but these conditions for practice are excellent. Excellent. And yet, at the same time, you know, nobody's hitting you. Nobody's doing anything aggressive towards you. Nothing. But yet, you can sit in quiet with, every, with, with a room full of loving people there to support you, and you're there to support them, and still kind of be in a living hell. You're just sitting there, and the mind is just extremely unhappy with the way things are going. But what's crucial to understand is that this is part of the process. This is part of the unfolding. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean that it's unfolding for everybody else very differently, and you're the only one that's sitting there like that. It doesn't mean any of those things. It simply means that's the state of our minds. And right now, sitting quietly, we're beginning, not for many of us, we're not just beginning to discover this, but for, for new people on retreat, quite often it's a harsh discovery, which is just how conflicted the mind is. So that's kind of a very quick summation of the bad news. And there's probably more bad news, actually, than I'm willing to go into, but <laughs> you'll be dragging yourself out of the hall. <laughs> I keep going on, but that's why I saved the good news for last. <laughs> the good news is that this is the beginning of the transformation. Just the beginning. Not the end, but just the beginning. It's a beginning of walking on this path of awakening. And as we awaken, not only do we awaken to the bad news, but we awaken to the possibilities of change. If we work with the difficulties in a skillful, mindful way, very quickly on the practice, in the practice, we can begin to discover subtle changes in consciousness. And it's very interesting to observe it even on a retreat from day to day. Just how consciousness shifts around. You know, things that were extremely intolerable a couple days ago, now there's a willingness to be there. There's more equanimity, more relaxation, more balance. 
But all these things have to be lived. In other words, one has to engage. One has to face the difficulties, the bad news. If we're not willing to stop and be with ourselves and begin to shed awareness on our experience, what we end up doing is being subject to our unconscious. And we, get, and we become subject to all the conditions that we meet. In other words, instead of learning from the conditions that we meet, instead of actually seeing the conditions that we meet in life as genuine opportunities for inner freedom, and they are, all the difficulties that we encounter, with a mindfulness practice, they become an opportunity for liberation. If we don't pay attention, if we're not willing to be with ourselves, we're subject to the legacy of our past conditioning. We keep running. We run in a very, very conditioned way. We're taught how to run, and we keep running. We don't stop. We don't begin to question things. We don't investigate the mind, what the nature of the mind is, what the nature of our suffering is. But when we become conscious, we begin to open up to this possibility, the shift in relationship, shift in relationship to our lives, where we can begin to see and we can begin to taste the potential for responding to life with some degree of wisdom and compassion rather than conditioned reactivity. Rather than just the unconscious habitual reactions to things. So often, so left over from the past, we can begin to relate to this present moment in a new way. I think of this practice of mindfulness and the spiritual path that we're on in a kind of long-term kind of framework, not so much a short-term. Even though I know in my heart, I've seen it over and over again, the, the profound power of even one moment of mindfulness with practice, one moment of mindfulness can facilitate a, a, a very deep awakening, seeing something fundamentally different, whether it's some kind of habit or pattern that's been creating a lot of suffering in your life, whether it's seeing the nature of who you are in a very profound way, in a way that's extremely surprising. Yet at the same time, recognizing that this transformation is a gradual process. In many ways, I see it as it's kind of like steering, uh, see if I can get this out, steering a transatlantic steamer or cruiser crossing the ocean. You know, all you have to do is steer it one degree. You know, one degree, but because the distance is so great, it makes such a huge difference in your life. And yet, when you steer it that one degree, Nobody on the ship notices it. Only the captain notices it because he knows what he's doing or she knows what she's doing. Mm -hmm. 
Got <laughs> I'm fairly well trained, actually. <laughs> See? They approve, too. <laughs> One of the pa the passengers, let's just say, may they all be happy, don't notice that one degree. But it makes a big difference in their life. And that's the mindfulness practice. Every time you come back to the present, every time you come back to the here and now, just being with that cushion, or being with the breathing, being with whatever your experience is. You're steering that wheel just a little bit, pointing it towards liberation. You may not notice it. We may not notice it. And so often we don't. Because we have expectations. We want to be at the destination. I say enjoy the cruise. Take your time. Relax. Give the mindfulness practice a, a chance. It will prove itself over and over and over again. But one definitely has to practice. Another reason why we emphasize that this is a practice, even though there's an innate quality of mindfulness. In some ways, you don't have to put IMS out of business, but you don't actually have to practice mindfulness. It's there. It's within you. It's an innate quality in the mind. But we need to remember to do it. We need those reminders. We need uh, to, to keep remembering over and over again to come back to the present moment because the more often we remember, the more often we remember to just come back to here and now, the deeper and the stronger the mindfulness gets, the more powerful it becomes. Because what mindfulness is, is, is it's simply another form of intelligence. But it's a form of intelligence that we haven't cultivated that much, most of us. It's certainly not part of our education or training. It's not out there in the culture. I mean, a little bit now, but certainly not in the institutions and home life and uh, work life that most of us uh, live in, and that's still true. It's one of the most unmindful planets there must be. I mean, people just do not pay attention. Uh, they keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again, and uh, they don't learn. We don't learn. So what we're doing in practice, why it's a long-term undertaking in many ways, even though profound changes can happen not so long-term, is that we're cultivating this form of intelligence that's very different than thought. Very different than thought. You see, some thought is, is a form of intelligence that right from the get-go uh, we're trained in. You know, we're, in fact, we're trained to rely on thought. 
And unfortunately, there's no problem with thought. Now, uh, in, in a sense, there's no problem with thought. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but the problem is relying exclusively on thought. That's the problem. It's not, in a sense, we all need to, to rely on thought. But we also need to cultivate this other form of intelligence because as we develop this other kind of intelligence, this very uh, powerful form of intelligence, which is this very silent attention, this non-judgmental loving attention to the here and now, and to remember to do that, that's intelligence. It it knows the experience in a very open-hearted, non-judgmental, free of the shoulds and shouldn'ts. That's thought. I should and shouldn't. I shouldn't be tired. I shouldn't be restless. I should be happy. I should be peaceful. That's, of course, the thinking mind, and it's deeply conditioned. Mindfulness isn't burdened by that. Mindfulness meets painful experiences. It meets pleasant experiences. It meets neutral experiences with the same spirit. Very open-hearted. Oh, painful experience arising. Oh, pleasant experience arising. Just opens to it. Embraces it. It doesn't, it doesn't push it. It doesn't push it down. It doesn't reject it. It doesn't cling to it. And it's an innate form of intelligence that we all have. We all have that capacity to meet experience that way. So we're cultivating this new kind of intelligence, and of course, you know, it kind of goes up against thought a lot as you can see in your own practice. You know, thought is telling us all sorts of things about our experience, about who we are, about this retreat, about how you're doing and how you're progressing or how you're not progressing, whether it's a good idea that you're here or a bad idea that you're here. It's telling you all sorts of things. There's lots of endless chatter and endless stories being weaved by the mind. Mindfulness is silent. Meets experience with silence, deep silence. That's its nature. That's, that's what it does. That's, that's that innate form of intelligence. When I came into this practice, my early 20s, I think I was about 22, let's just say I was pretty crazy. Let's just put it that way. Pretty crazy. Um, in a lot of pain, Physical, emotional, kind of, you know, tumultuous year, kind of dragged myself or crawled my, my, my way out of the 60s. And I won't even describe what the 60s were like, partly because I can't remember them. Uh, <laughs> and what I do remember, I don't want to. Uh, so coming to the practice with this much, you know, really inner pain, quite frankly, um, and very um, in my head, and very just kind of, you know, a lot of thinking mind, put it that way, as, as my Zen, as Zen master I, I've studied with would say, lots and lots of thinking mind. Um, the one thing I had going for, my, for me, kind of the, the grace of the Buddha, that I had this one uh, quality, whatever, whatever, however which way you want to describe it, is that I had a very, very strong determination in my mind. A, a realization, first of all, that I wasn't going to be able to think my way out. You know, I, I was in one of those holes that Narayan talked about last night, big black hole. 
And I realized that I wasn't actually going to be able to think my way out. In fact, the th- my thinking, at least then, was so conditioned that it just dug me in deeper. And thank heavens, I realized at some point that I needed to try something different. And I committed myself. Somehow, hearing the teachings, they made so much sense. I committed myself and dedicated myself uh, in some ways to a real extreme way to just trying to be mindful and, and kind of abandon thinking at, at every possible chance I could get. And I, I remember I went through a period where I made this decision. I was never going to do any planning, ever, <laughs> ever. Let's just say things got very haphazard in my life. <laughs> I kind of found myself in places, and I absolutely had no idea how I got there. And you know, it was amazing how things unfolded, though. I mean, I did find myself often in the right place at the right time, uh, without a lot of planning. Uh, maybe that was my good karma. Um, but I remember I, my first three-month retreat. I have no idea how I got there, in a sense. You know, I just I knew I had to work and save up money, and then. All of a sudden, I was 2,000 miles away, sitting my butt off, basically, uh, for three months. And I didn't really spend that much time planning. But I made this commitment that every time I sat, I wasn't going to try to figure things out. I wasn't going to spend my time analyzing, figuring things out, elaborating on my experience, um, problem solving. You know, all of those things can be extremely useful if the mind has been infused with this other form of intelligence, which is silent attention. Then your thoughts begin to work with us. They become useful. They become constructive because they help us move in a direction of liberation. But without the awareness, all we have to do is take a look at the world that we've created together to see what shape we're in we're in many, many ways getting much better and much more clever at our thinking capacity. Yet at the same time, it doesn't feel. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, can't claim that I'm in touch with the ultimate direction we're going, but let's just say there's still a lot of samsara and suffering happening in the world. In fact, it's, it's predominant, I would say. And that's because there isn't a lot of awareness. You know, and it, there's not a lot of wise thought, as the Buddha described. And so, when we come on retreat, we don't want to create an enemy of the thinking mind. See, that's the other extreme. You know, we're here to cultivate mindfulness, which isn't the thinking mind. But on the other hand, if you, if you think that your thoughts are problems, that having thoughts or thinking about things is a problem, and the way that shows up, of course, is in the wandering mind or the mind that's planning or fantasizing. If you create an enemy, it's reinforcing those thoughts. See, mindfulness doesn't create an enemy of those thoughts. You know, in many ways, it could care less what it's looking at because it just opens to the experience. And so when thoughts arise, it's to bring mindfulness to those thoughts. It's not to sit there in judgment of the wandering mind. You know, the wandering mind isn't who you are. It's just what happens with the mind when you sit down and there's not a lot going on. The mind wanders off to somewhere else. So no need to claim it. No need to identify with it. But you want to be mindful of the wandering mind. You want to be mindful when those fantasies come up 
or when you find yourself planning what you're going to do after the retreat. Um, that's kind of absurd, quite frankly, to be planning what you're going to do after this retreat. Uh, and there probably are a few people out there that might be engaged in that activity. Uh, there might even be somebody planning their next retreat by now, for all I know, I mean, which is really crazy, uh, since you don't even know how it's going to go. Okay, so the commitment is to be mindful. And what happens through mindfulness, which doesn't necessarily happen through just relying on the thinking mind, is that we begin to undergo this process of self-knowing. In other words, we begin to get to know ourselves on the ground level. You know, we're right down there, kind of in the trenches, right on the ground level, taking a look in a very direct and hopefully open-hearted, loving way, being mindful, exactly what's going on there. And what we discover, of course, is all sorts of habitual reactions. We, we, we get to know ourselves. We begin to see the pattern, patterns emerging. If we pay attention over a sustained period of time, what we begin to see is repetition. Has anybody noticed that? The repetition of thoughts? You know, oftentimes we think of ourselves as tremendously thoughtful, clever, intelligent, beings who can problem solve and we have lots of creative energy with our thoughts and oftentimes we think of ourselves that way and then we sit down and then we discover that you know there may be a hundred or two hundred thoughts that we keep having over and over and over again that in many ways the mind is kind of in a groove where it keeps repeating the same themes that there's patterns to our thoughts there's patterns to our, our reactions and as we pay attention in a more continuous way, we begin to notice that about ourselves, that we react certain ways to food, or we react to heat, or we react to conditions that we don't like in a certain way. One thing we notice is that we react with aversion to uh, painful experiences or difficult experiences. Or we might notice a, a pattern where we're clinging on to pleasant experiences. You, know, you might have that moment of peace, for instance, in the first morning sitting. And then second morning sitting, you know, you're still clinging to that feeling and it's not coming. And of course, that, of course, creates suffering. But we get to know ourselves. We begin to, to see ourselves. Another liberating aspect of mindfulness practice is that for a lot of people, when they begin to practice, it feels like kind of self-conscious. You know, it's kind of like we're practicing being self-conscious. In other words, we're practicing observing ourselves. And we become very uh, aware of the observer, you know, the, that commentator that's sitting back there, judging and evaluating and observing your experience. And so often, what happens is there's this feeling that especially new students, but even people who have been practicing for a while experience, which is this kind of separation. There's the, the experience, and then there's the distance from the experience of the observer. And a lot of people, when they first start practicing, they worry about that because they think, you know, it's going to cut into the joy of the spontaneity in life. You're going to be sitting back, stuck, observing everything that you're doing. You're not going to be able to enjoy yourself anymore. You're always going to be watching yourself. Uh, and that's not where it goes. That's not where practice goes. As we shift our direction and we begin to practice this mindfulness, this form of intelligence, yes, it does feel like that. And it is in some ways like that. But a lot of what's happening is that we're becoming aware of the observer. 
of becoming aware of that commentator. And what happens with time in practice is that in the field of awareness, it's mysterious in a way, it's hard to describe, but in this field of awareness, gradually and slowly, the observer begins to dissolve. The burden of the observer, the burden of the commentator, the judge, begins to dissolve. It dissolves in awareness. When it arises sometimes in practice, you see it as a thought. Rather than self, you begin to see it as a thought. And so there's mindfulness of it, and it disappears. So it's not a burden anymore. What we discover instead of solidifying this observer, uh, reinforcing it through thinking, is that we discover this capacity to be instead intimate with our experience. Intimate with our experience. In other words, in intimacy, just thinking about what intimacy and relationship means, it doesn't mean that you're sitting there observing yourself and this person. Uh, if you're watching a bird, you know, just with one with that bird. Intimacy, the thought, I am observing myself, watch this bird, that creates, of course, separation. That begins to dissolve as we practice mindfulness. There's much more of a sense of unity with what your experience is. That separation begins to disappear. That separation which creates so much tension, which can be so harsh and critical sometimes, that begins to lose its power. And we develop an ability to just simply receive in an open-hearted way whatever's arising. So we're able to cultivate an intimacy, you know, close, receptive. If, if we're intimate with something, we're present. We're not somewhere else. And we've all had those conversations with somebody when they've been preoccupied. Maybe it's happened when we've been preoccupied. There's no intimacy because there's no connection. We're not being present. Mindfulness allows us to be present and to receive things as they are, without a particular agenda. So we develop intimacy with our bodies, we develop intimacy with our emotional life, the life of the mind. We develop intimacy. Remember, intimacy is free of judgment. You're not sitting there criticizing your emotions. Mindfulness is just receiving, in a very open-hearted way, one's emotional life. Intimacy with the environment. When we walk in the woods, when we walk outside, you know, or even if we're walking in a building and we're mindful and we're present, you know, there's a sense of connectedness or unity. There's kind of a dissolving of oneself and a sense of being part of one's environment as a whole. You know, we begin to experience ourselves as part of life, not separate from nature, but part of it. That's the openness of mindfulness as it deepens, as we practice it. That's the direction it moves. If it didn't, the three of us wouldn't be doing what we're doing. If it moved more and more towards self-consciousness and distant observer, frankly, that is not a lot of fun. There's not a lot of laughs and joy in that. And in the Dharma path, even, somebody mentioned just how grim everybody looks. Uh, for new students, it's a little bit of a culture shock. I always suggest to people, don't judge based on appearance. Don't judge based on appearance. People may seem serious. 
Sometimes the practice feels serious, but the direction it goes, the direction mindfulness takes us is towards opening our heart to joy and spontaneity and laughter because we're not so burdened by the past. You know, we can connect to life. It's, it's, mindfulness energizes the system. Sure, the energy is right now maybe kind of low, but that's because we're in the process of stopping and taking a look. The energy will begin to come. You just have to be patient. But mindfulness energizes. It, when we, for instance, when we're mindful of um, ordinary activities in life, you know, think, quote, ordinary activities, like going to the bathroom, or just doing all the little things that you're doing on your retreat life. Um, you know, so often when, we, we're, when we're caught up in this thing where we have to move on to the next moment, that, that's a big part of our conditioning. And that's a habit. Remember I said as you pay attention, as we pay attention to ourselves, we notice habits. And one very deep habit, and be aware of this habit, you, it arises. If we're silent enough, we can notice this constant moving into the next moment, this constant moving into the next moment, this kind of inability, unwillingness, resistance to just being in the here and now. And inwardly, the conditioning is telling us that the next moment is going to be better. You know, it might not even be conscious. A lot of this is unconscious. But that's our conditioning, is this promise that if you keep running, it's going to get better. You keep running, and the faster you run, the better it's going to get. But all it gets is tiring. All it gets is tiring and kind of frustrating because all you have, no matter what anybody says, is the present moment. The present moment. And so you want to be around for that. In fact, mindfulness allows us to live life fully. It allows us to live life fully. Instead of half-heartedly, instead of disconnected, lost in the world of thought, it allows us to be in the moment, to connect to momentary experiences, things that we didn't notice before, that we didn't appreciate before, that things that we took for granted, we can begin to taste, or see, or smell. And that requires our mind to be open and present. And if we just try to think our way to there, it doesn't work. You can make all the plans in the world. You can figure out, know exactly why you have the problems you have. But it's still, that itself is not going to allow us to discover what, um, what our potential is. You know, because thoughts so often tell us who we are. They tell us who we are and what, what's possible. And mindfulness allows us to kind of take a look at the state of things, learn how to navigate and let go of one's suffering, and then to discover what our potential is. What our potential is. And before we walk on a path of awareness, very difficult to imagine what it is. We might have all sorts of ideas. We may have read very, very inspiring spiritual books and stories and heard lots of tapes and all sorts of stuff. And so we know, you know, there's something special, let's just say, whatever that might be, on the path. There's something to discover. 
that th there is greater potential. But if we're going to discover it for ourselves, which is really what matters, is if, if we're going to live it, we have to begin to live it. And the way to live it, fortunately, is available to us. And if we're patient enough and we practice enough, it becomes accessible. And to me, that's perhaps the most wonderful thing about mindfulness practice, spiritual practice, this kind of spiritual practice, is that I think it's accessible. I think it's accessible. If one is willing to cultivate wise effort, if one is willing to be with oneself, then it's possible to touch the things that we aspire to. It's possible to live a life that we aspire to. It's not just an ideal. Hey, so could we have a couple minutes of silence and maybe kind of just listen to the rain? Let it do its thing. So please keep nurturing this power. It's liberating, and it happens right now as we make our way up, standing, stretching the body, and moving out of the hall. Staying attentive and awake.
whatever you're doing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.